Hi, I'm Amanda Catherine Weiss, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist. I'm the least political person in my family, but that ends today. Many of our listeners may not know that we actually record our episodes about a week ahead of time. So when we release an episode, we've recorded at least one week before that release. That means that sometimes we release an episode after a major issue, occurrence, event happens in our country. While we try to be on top of it in our social media, sometimes we feel the need to actually address it in our episodes. This week, we really wanted to address what's been happening in our country with the Supreme Court through a Jewish lens and also through what happens in our Torah and how we might be able to take it with us when we're feeling extreme anger, extreme frustration, and when we're not sure exactly how to react or how to respond. We hope that you'll stay in it with us. We know that this episode might be a little tough politically, and if that's not your jam, that's okay. We'll make sure to put the timestamps for both the Parsha Rundown, and Midrashic Mixology, so you can skip to those parts if they're your favorite. But we hope you'll stay in it with us, and we're willing to get into it with you. We really believe that uplifting all voices matters, and especially at this time, we know that our platform is a space where we wanted to make sure that you heard what we were thinking and feeling in this moment. We really believe in uplifting every voice, and with this platform, we felt it was extremely important for you to hear our voices and our feelings, especially at this moment in time. Gabe, I know over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about revolutions, rebellions, and responses. The idea of when we might be able to respond versus react and what calls for a specific type of action or reaction. Hukat deals a lot with frustration, anger, and movement. The ability to take something that's coming at us and react. Maybe not the best reaction, but to truly act and move forward. Regardless, it seems like it might be a little tricky this week, and I know this portion has its ups and downs, and so I was hoping you might be able to help us delineate and make a little bit clearer what Parshat Hukat is about. We start with a ritual. Step one, find a red heifer that's pure and never been worked. What's a heifer? A cow. Once you find your pure, lazy red cow, step two, bring it outside of the camp. Step three, slaughter it. Step four, sprinkle some blood toward the tent of meeting. Step five, burn the cow and its poop. Step six, throw in some wood and spices and red stuff. Step seven, take a bath and wash your clothes. Congrats, you may now re-enter the camp, but you're impure until evening. Also, whoever performed the burning has to bathe and do laundry and is also impure until evening. Same with whoever cleans up the ashes. Also impure, anyone who touches a human corpse, enters a tent with a corpse, or touches a grave. They're impure for seven days. Impure? There's a sacrifice for that. Story time! The Israelites arrive in the wilderness of Zin and Miriam dies. Without Miriam, there's no water and the Israelites love to complain, so they do that for a while. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and God appears to them, instructing Moses to assemble the community and, with all of them watching, order the rock to yield water for them and their animals. So Moses takes his staff and does as God commanded, assembling the community before the rock. Moses yells out, Listen, you rebels! Shall we get water for you out of this rock? And Moses strikes the rock, not once, but twice. Water rushes from the rock and the people are satisfied. But God says to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to affirm my 
sanctity to the Israelites, you shall not lead them into the land I promised to them. Moral of the story, don't be mean to rocks. Is that the moral? We'll find out. Anyway, the Israelites send some messengers to their cousins, the Edomites, to tell them all the bad stuff that's happened. The king of Edom is unsympathetic and doesn't grant the Israelites safe passage, refusing twice. So the Israelites turn around and go to Mount Hor. Moses brings Aaron and Eliezer up the mountain where Aaron dies and Eliezer becomes the new high priest. It's a nice promotion that comes with a cool ephod. To get your own cool ephod, go to store.drinkinganddroshing.com slash ephod. So, the Edomites weren't very nice. How about other Canaanites? Nope, the king of Arad attacks and takes some people captive, but don't worry, God helps the Israelites win in the end. So they keep walking, but big surprise, they keep complaining. God doesn't like whining, so God sends a snake that kills some people. Makes sense. Moses clears the whole thing up, though. God notices that the people need water again. So God says to Moses, hey, get those guys some water. The Israelites sing a song about a well. Cool. Oh, hey, more Canaanites. Will they be nice? Nope, they attack. But don't worry, Israel wins with God's help. Oh, hey, more Canaanites. Will they be nice? Yes, really? No. They attack and Israel prevails again. Nice. So Israel marches on, finally reaching Moab just across the Jordan River from Jericho. And that's Parashat Chukat. A lot of action, a lot of activism, and a lot of, I don't know, some way of making madness out of chaos, out of tradition. It's a little crazy, but I guess that's what this chaotic portion of Chukat is all about, right? Yeah, there's a lot going on, and really, there's a lot to talk about. So let's jump in. last couple of weeks, the Supreme Court has come up with a series of rulings that have really shaken up the country, have really given us a lot to be angry about, a lot to think about, and it's left a lot of us feeling kind of helpless. It's left a lot of us really in the wilderness without really understanding what to do or what comes next. Look, this is a difficult thing for us to talk about, especially because Judaism as a whole often has had its rulings based on precedent, similar to what happens with the Supreme Court, that generally cases and rulings and laws are decided on what came before. But there's kind of a problem with that. When we have a situation of what comes before and what came before not necessarily aligning with the situations that we're dealing with now, we kind of end up in this idea of originalism, this philosophy that says the only way that we can really understand the decisions that we make now is if we trade it exactly as if we were in the time when they were originally discussing these issues. Right. And that's like a really dangerous way to read religious texts. The way that the rabbis thought about religious text is different than the way that we have to think about them today because they lived in a very different context and we need to understand that when we're reading rabbinic texts. In the same way, when we read biblical texts, we need to understand that those texts were written in a very specific context that is very different from the contexts in which we live today. So when we're trying to create a legal precedent or we're trying to understand a legal precedent, that, you know, happened 50 years ago, and we're trying to understand how it might work today by basing it in the past, we struggle because 
that's not the type of world that I live in. And also, that's not necessarily the type of Judaism that I practice. A lot of the reason why I embrace the Reform Judaism that I practice and love is because it allows me to see the world as it is now and to try to utilize those traditional texts and those legal precedents in a way that makes sense for us today. So, Amanda, question Does this mean that we abandon religious texts altogether? Does this mean that we abandon what came before? No, I don't think it does. I think that we have an understanding of what happened before in terms of what our text might say. And we've dealt with this in the Torah before. You know, when things might be difficult, we're able to look at them and say, wow, I understand this. I'm willing to wrestle with this. I'm willing to argue with this. And I might choose in the end to say, this doesn't work for me and find a solution out. But we don't just kind of walk away from what our history was, no matter how problematic it was to begin with. Okay, so to be explicit, the Supreme Court ruling that I think has upset at least me the most was that overturning Roe v. Wade. Amanda, could you talk to us a little bit about what Torah or what Judaism has to say about abortion? Gabe, I really appreciate that you asked that question. I know that we talked about this in episode Mishpatim with Mike, but we do have specifically in Torah, we have a line in Exodus 21, 22 to 23 that says when men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues, the one responsible is fined according as a woman's husband may exact from him the payment to be based on reckoning. But if other damage ensues, the penalty shall be life for life. So in this moment, this fetus, this woman who miscarries, isn't considered a person who was murdered, right? There is a part of a person. Generally, Judaism has a lot of things to say about pregnancy and women and what makes a differentiation between the two. So in Yevamut 69b, for those following along at home, we have an understanding that a woman, if she's pregnant, generally until the 40th day, the fetus isn't considered even a fetus at that point. The fetus is considered fluid within the woman itself, right? An actual kind of part of the woman. And if she miscarries, even on that 40th day, she doesn't necessarily need to be super concerned about following all of the laws that go along with that. Generally speaking, a fetus is considered to be a part of the mother, not necessarily separate from the mother. And if there's any threat to the the mother's life, be it physical or psychological, an abortion actually can be permitted in order to save a woman's life, in order to save the mother's life. And I think that that might surprise a lot of people. Yeah. In fact, under Jewish law, abortion could be required if the pregnant person's life is in danger. We value human life over all else, and according to most Jewish sources, life begins at first breath. That also, in part, comes from the Torah, this idea that man was created when God blew into man's nostrils, this ability to live. So that comes in our very beginning of our Torah portions. And generally also, and I think it matters, that most of the time people believe that if a baby's head emerges from the womb, that baby is also alive and shouldn't be touched. And I think that that's an important distinction to make. Right. I think that a lot of my anger toward this ruling is not only about the attack on bodily autonomy, which is obviously terrible and disgusting and should be vehemently protested by everyone, but also... This idea that 
a few people, the people in power, get to decide when life begins, get to decide this really sacred thing, this religious idea. You know, we talk about these values of traditional family values of life, and it's really important to remember that we don't all have the same ideas as to when life begins or what constitutes a life or really what our priorities are or should be regarding medical care. I don't disagree. And I think that it's really important to state that Hukat and part of the reason that we chose Hukat to do this particular portion in this particular episode happens when the major woman's voice, the major voice of female leadership disappears with Miriam's death. Miriam, who is attached to this idea of water, who is attached to this idea of life, has passed. And then all of these things start to kind of go wrong, start to go awry, start to avalanche forward. It's hard not to think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg of blessed memory. It's hard not to think about, you know, our own modern prophet who really did so much, not only for women, but for really all of us. And without her, things have really seemed to spiral. Now, that's not to say that others haven't taken up the fight. That's not to say that others haven't been important. There are certainly so many people doing the work. But it's really hard not to see the parallel between Miriam and Justice Ginsburg. I don't disagree. And also, when you think about this, really, when we're looking at Numbers 20, which is when we deal with Miriam's death, the immediate line after Miriam dies says, The Lohaya Mayim Leida, the Yikahelu Al Moshe Al Aharon, that this community had no water, right? It was completely without water. And they congregated, these people congregated against Moses and Aaron. There is an issue here. Vayarev, that like Vayarev Ha'am, like they argue, they wrestle, they really like talk about revving up. They really get into it with their leadership saying like, we're not happy with what's going on. If only we had died beforehand, you know, when God wanted to get rid of us beforehand, like why are we even here now? Why are we here under a leadership that is so awful that we can't even get anything good to drink? We can't get anything good to eat. This life isn't the life that we agree to. So what do we do now? It's such a powerful line. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is that our commentators actually disagree on why Moses is punished for his disobedience to God, because it's a little vague in the text. God doesn't say, because you hit the rock. God says, because you didn't trust me enough to sanctify me before the community. And, like, what does that mean? And what one commentary says is that it wasn't actually that Moses hit the rock. That wasn't the sin. But rather... The line that Moses said before Moses hits the rock, listen, you rebels, the Hebrew being morim, that word morim is seen to be an insult to the people. And because Moses is insulting the people before God, that's the sin, is Moses insulting the nation of Israel. 
Absolutely. And I want to focus on this word marim because I think that there are a lot of things that come into it. So marim, we talk about this idea, can also be teachers from the word yora, can also have to do with the bitterness of mar, right? Like the fact that there is a really bitter situation happening can bring back to mind this idea of Miriam, because without vowels, that's what the word can look like can come from, again, this idea of Mar being a drop to come through, and also deals with the same as rebels and spies that we had before, people who have necessarily pushed back, people who are rebelling. And I think that sometimes, right, and we talked about this in our episode with Andrew Bellenfant, sometimes we have moments that call for a rebellion, Sometimes we have moments that call for a reaction, and sometimes we have moments that call for a response. And right now, both in Hukat and in our country, it's difficult to know which way to turn and which is the right action to take. I'm wondering what our tradition can teach us about speaking up for what we believe in in a just way, speaking truth to power in a way that doesn't reflect negatively on us. You know, we've seen a lot of stories where the people seem to be in the wrong when they say something negative, when they rebel against Moses. I'm wondering what a just rebellion really looks like. I really appreciate that you said that. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about happens to come in 2013, which I think often is a throwaway line. But I want you to hear me out. I think it's a meaningful line as well. So in 2013, in Numbers 2013, we hear, So the way that can be understood is these here are the waters of Meribah. Right? And here it says, Asher Ravu, because these Israeli people, Asher Ravu B'nei Israel, these people quarreled, they fought, they rebelled, et Adonai, to God, with God, against God. And in doing so, Vayikadesh Bam, that actually they sanctified God, that God was sanctified through their quarrel. And I want to remind everyone that this idea of the word Yisrael came originally from Jacob's struggling, wrestling with God. We are a people who wrestle. We are a people who quarrel. We are a people who fight when things seem not right. And that too can be a sacred action. You know, I think something that has really bothered me for years is this idea that in America, religion and religiosity is conflated with right-wing politics, that if a person is religious, they are assumed to be conservative. And really, I so reject that. And I would so love to see a rise of, you know, the religious left or really just a different kind of religious politics where we highlight the values that I see as central to our belief, these values of protecting the stranger and the orphan and the widow and those who need our help. 
I really, I just get angry when I hear things like the moral majority, or as I said earlier, traditional family values, or Judeo-Christian values. I hate that so much because it just doesn't represent who I am. And I'm a deeply religious person. I read religious texts, I pray, I observe holidays, and I strive to incorporate my understandings of Jewish values into my life. And it really sickens me that the sacred is so often used to curtail liberty. It's really been turned against itself. So as I said, I think it really is time for a rise of religious morality in this country that really blots out the memory of this perversion of traditions it claims to serve. With the overturn of Roe, the greatest victory the religious right has ever seen, I think it's incumbent upon those of us who hold bodily autonomy and reproductive freedom as sacred to declare as such reproductive freedom is a Jewish value. And you're not the only person that thinks that. In fact, in a 2014 Pew study report, 83% of American Jews said that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And they base that off of, you guessed it, legal precedent and the understanding of the legal precedent that came before. Not only from the Mishpatim quote that we gave before, but also from some of the Mishnah and Gemara that we've quoted. Truly, truly, it does seem like there is an understanding that people believe that in moments where it could be a danger to a woman's life, in moments where that could mean physical or psychological harm, that we value this woman's life above the idea of what might change it, what might harm it, what might cause it difficulty, and that those decisions are individual, independent decisions, and that when people come out and they fight for the right of people to make those individual decisions, that that pushback, that that reaction, that response, it can be extraordinarily powerful. And in fact, it can even sanctify the actions of people who are making these decisions with true difficulty and trauma. And I think that that matters. I think that that is holy. And I think that that stands strongly in the tradition that we try to uplift through this podcast. I couldn't agree more. I really believe that this podcast and Jewish tradition as a whole really is about uplifting, as I said, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, all those who are in need of help, all those who maybe don't have the means to defend themselves or somebody to defend them. I think it's up to us to really fight for what's right, even if it's not about us personally. And to that end, every week we always ask our guests, if you had the ability to put out one message, what would that message be? What would you want people to know or feel or do? And for us, what we hope that you get from this episode is that you're not alone. If this is something that you're thinking about, if this is something that you're struggling with, we're here with you. We feel you. We are supporting you. If this is something that you are trying to come to terms with, know this. It is so clear that somebody that you know and somebody that you love most likely has had an abortion in their life and might be too scared to come forward to tell their stories. But we want you to know that we're here to hear your stories and to hear your struggles and that we support you in them and that we too are trying to understand the best reaction, response, or yes, even rebellion when it comes to dealing with the difficulties and culture that our country is in right now. Thank you.
At the beginning of this Torah portion, we have the ritual of the sacrifice of the red heifer, the ashes of which are then used in a bunch of other rituals. So, A, cool. B, here's a drink to go along with it. Start off by rimming a glass with a lemon and sugar for the ashes of the sacrifice. In a cocktail shaker, one and a quarter ounces of cran apple juice, which was my favorite as a child, for the red of the cow and for its blood. A half ounce of lemon juice for all the sour complaining, and two and a half ounces of bourbon. Shake it up and pour on the rocks, striking them, or maybe just garnishing, with a cinnamon stick and a slice of lemon. For a non-alcoholic red heifer, replace the bourbon with apple cider. You won't be whining for a well after this drink. Lechaim. So generally, this is the time where we would say that we've hit thank yous and closing cues. And I'm not sure that we really have a meaningful closing question for this week's episode, especially because it feels, Gabe, like all we have are questions and struggles and thoughts and issues. And so I do want to make sure that we have some thank yous out there to say thank you to everybody who's putting in the work and efforts to make sure that people feel safe. Thank you to people who are pushing back against the laws that prevent pregnant people from getting the help and care that they need. Thank you to everybody who is putting forth their support and their prayers and their efforts and their protests and being willing to show up and stand forward when they can. And for those who are praying and ensuring that their words and hopes and meditations are heard, for those that can't go out and protest, we see you, we feel you, and we're with you both in spirit and in lockstep. Thank you, of course, to Gabe for letting me put on this episode when I was very frustrated and very angry and trying to find an action that would be able to meet the heights of that frustration. Thank you to Idan for coming back. We missed you and for being willing to let us go a little bit off track as long as we promised to connect it to Chukhat, which I think we did, and I think we did well. Thank you to Kate, who is always willing to make us sound more brilliant than I sometimes feel like I am as I stumble over my words. And thank you to everybody who believes that struggling and fighting, that quarreling and connecting can be a holy endeavor, can be something that sanctifies us as a people, as a community, and hopefully one day as a country that we are able to make these precedents our own, that we are able to translate Torah and text and tradition in our own terms, in our own time, and that time is now. We stand with you. We hear you. As we say, Shimanu, we've heard you, and we continue to want to hear your stories. Please feel free to reach out to us at drinkingandrashing at gmail.com. Hit up our website, www.drinkingandrashing.com. Reach out to us on Instagram at Drinking and Drashing or at Facebook at Drinking and Drashing. We are so ready to share in the struggle and in your stories with all of you. We raise up our glass and we raise up our eyes to see you. We hope that we can be some of the help that comes your way. And really, for all of us, to life, to choice, Lechaim. Lechaim. I'm Gabe Snyder, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist. And reproductive freedom is a Jewish value, full stop.